Welcome to Pod Tease. Each week, we'll grant your wish. We'll surprise and delight you with binge-worthy podcasts that are sure to become your new favorites. Our hand-picked selection of changemakers, rebels, do-gooders, educators, funny makers, and more will make their way onto your new and noteworthy list. Do you have a show that you think needs to be featured? Check out our show notes for your chance to be our next Pod Tease. I would like to introduce the All The Way Authentic Podcast with Kevin P. Henry. If you want to focus on developing yourself and understanding the human experience, this podcast is for you. Kevin is charming and insightful, and the All The Way Authentic Podcast discusses from diversity and inclusion to mental health and everything else in between. In this featured episode, Kevin interviews author and motivational speaker, Alexandra Nicole, and they are breaking down tough discussions that help us unify as a collective humanity. You do not want to miss this. So let's kick it with Kevin Henry and Alexandria Nicole on the All The Way Authentic Podcast. What do you do if you're an inspirational, motivational speaker in the COVID era? What is it like to be a speaker who relies on personal interaction, eye-to-eye contact, a speaker who's fueled by the vibe in a room or an auditorium? Now you have to operate on Zoom or another online platform. How do you create intimacy over the internet? I spoke with author and motivational speaker Alexandria Nicole, and we talked about her career, the importance of diversity, and how to energize educate and unify people from different backgrounds this is all the way authentic i'm your host kevin p henry so, so, so go ahead you were in australia yeah yeah we were doing the women's empowerment summit i was the moderator for that the women that are a part of it are like from australia so it's mm-hmm. the, that's the cool aspect about zoom and that ability to connect but yeah i was resistant to it because i do i feel like there is a certain synergy to being in the room with people, you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a couple of things. One is I have to do these trainings on a regular basis. And one training in particular that I have to do because the screen is being shared, I can only see like two people in the little Mm -hmm. boxes. Mm -hmm. And I know there's like, one time there was 400 people and I I couldn't see 398 of them. So (laughs) I'm just talking and talking. I'm like, oh, well, I hope that nobody's asleep or or just walked out of the room, you know, it's like I'm talking to myself. Yeah, you can't get a good read on it, but yeah, it's like, like an a, audience. You can see if they're still with you well, or if yeah. you need to shift your energy a little bit, but you can't if you've only got those two people, you're pretty yeah. much relying on them to yeah. see if you're, you're conveying what you want to. <laughs> but one thing I will say, and and maybe you've had this experience, one thing that has helped is initially my background was in theater. So I was used to the whole thing where you're on stage, but you can, even though you're you're ignoring the audience psychologically, you're still aware of the energy right. and you feed off of that. And then right. I, I had to come up to Seattle and I had to start doing these public service announcements just into a camera with nobody, no audience, no nothing. And at first it was very awkward. It felt weird, but then I got used to it because then I started thinking, okay, how can I get in the right 
frame of mind to do this. And I started to think about when I, you know, when we're children, we have imaginary friends, you know, and we talk to yes. our imaginary friends and, oh, look who's yes. here. It's Alexandria Nicole. <laughs> it's so good to see. Or we have our stuffed animals and, and we're talking to them. And so we're then, performing to the animals. Yeah. yeah. So then I just got into that just mindset. That term. <laughs> right. So now I'm used oh, to. Oh, that's so good. That's that, so, so good. Yeah. I think I'm definitely going to incorporate that. But yeah, right now it's very much so um, like person to person when we're, you know, not confined by the restrictions of COVID. But other than that, right, um, like the solidarity talks and things that I have, I, I love that connecting with the crowd. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because when I first started having them, you know, I was trying to like, there was a certain vibe that I was trying to cultivate and I, I couldn't get there. And at first it was like, I'd have keynote speakers and I felt like, I don't like this because it's like listeners versus crowd. And I don't mm-hmm. want that separation of listen to us just because we're up here. Like, how do mm-hmm. I connect with the people that are viewing too and also let them feel invited into the conversation, right? Mm-hmm. And I would, I would mix and mold it. And then finally... It all goes back to childhood. I swear it does. We took it back to kindergarten and I was like, let's just sit in a circle together and pass the microphone Mm. together so everybody's on the same level. Some people aren't comfortable with standing up, talking in the microphone or like that dynamic of, oh God, everybody's looking at me. So when we all like sat down and it was just like sharing circle and people just, they contributed in a different way and it had Mm. a different level of authenticity. And I was like, yes, this is... This is mm-hmm. the feeling. This is what I've been wanting, like inviting everybody into the conversation. And it was just that, like you said, taking it back to school, sitting down, having a conversation. Everybody's on the same level, you know? Well, sometimes I think we can overthink things and overcomplicate things sometimes, you know, especially in, in the field that we're in where we're training or we're motivating or we're, we're trying to inspire people or or whatever the goal is. So, so why don't we just start, start with there, you know, start with, tell me about what you do, who you are and what you do. Oh, I do all the things. (laughs) You do everything. Yes. So my passion is to motivate and inspire and uplift. And basically everything I do is focused on that. And because I feel like if you can tap into changing people's heart as individuals, and then they can bring their best self to society, then that's when we can start to change collectively, right? So that's what I really love about the conversations that we have and and, and the things that I participate in is this like this collectiveness and and this, this purity of humanity and bringing us together in like a loving way, because honestly, like everybody wants to be loved. Everybody wants to be heard. I just, I just try to be that beacon of light to allow people the space to be themselves and tell them it's okay. I see you. It all started June 1st, 2020. And that day there was a protest here in Breckenridge. And before that day, I was completely okay with just being Alexandria, the mom, the wife, the business owner with my husband. I was like, that's my role in life. This is what it is. I was okay with it. Right. And I ended up going to the protest and it was hundreds of people there. And I didn't know what to expect because Breckenridge is like 96% white. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I was like, I didn't know what to expect. I was like, two people are going to be there. I'll just go and see what it's about, right? Just this, it was such this beautiful energy of love and, and solidarity. And I see you and we stand with you. And it was so beautiful, Kevin. And I just remember being in that space and was like, 
I don't know if I'm allowed to talk, but I've got something to say. And I just stand up on the table. And then I could really, I really sensed the gravity of how many people were there. They were covering downtown Breckenridge. And I just, I was crying and bawling and like releasing all of these aspects of pain that I didn't even realize was there. You know what I mean? Like they had just, you know, pain that just becomes a part of you and you don't even no, it's that you're not even cognizant of its existence, but just everybody being in that space and it just purely being about love and humanity, it healed me just being in the energy. So I get up on the table and I'm like, thank you so much for coming out and supporting and being a part of this walk and just showing people of color that you stand with us against these social injustices and that we are here, we're heard. And, and there were maybe... I want to say out of all of these hundreds of people, there were maybe 10 black people. And we all go up to the front and we're all hugging and crying and people are clapping. And it was amazing. It was it was a space that I will always remember because it was pivotal for me in my life. At that moment, like when I shed all the pain and, and I realized I had a voice and I wasn't just only going to be this one aspect of myself that I'd always identified with, you know, as the mom and the wife and business owner, but somebody that I, I wanted to be somebody that was also a part of the solution because it's easy for us to complain about the things that we see and becoming complacent with the things that we don't agree with in society, but like, what are you doing about it? And at that moment, I decided I wanted to be more impactful in the community and have more conversations with people and, and talk solutions too. And so since it was called the Solidarity Walk, I went to the girl who's now a good friend of mine and I said, I wanna keep this moving forward. I don't want it to just be this one visceral moment in time and then everybody goes home and we forget about it. I said, I want to keep it going. Since this was called a solidarity walk, can I call my talks the solidarity talks? I want to have them once a month. We'll have a topic. We'll discuss it. And we'll talk about solutions. What are your aspects on what we can do better in society? And she said, yeah, I love it. Cool. And I started doing solidarity talks. And people started to come in the community. We have these conversations. And now it's grown to the point where now it's like a community gathering where I, where I offer free food and I do a free clothes giveaway. So basically people donate clothes to me and you could come and get whatever you want or need. And you know what I mean? So it's it has kind of taken on its own form of not only talking about solutions, but actually taking actions to help people as well. That is how I believe Alexandria, as I am today, began to kind of shift and think outside of my own state of being. And I started to think more about we as a people and how I can um, how I can be helpful, how I can be of service and add value to people's lives. So, yeah, that was a lot. <laughs> well, no, it's all good. I mean, you you touched on a few things that um, made me think of a few things. One is, is that, like you said, you kind of saw yourself in this certain role and you were content with that and happy with that. And I think that a lot of us do that where this is my role. I'm a parent or I'm a teacher or I'm an astronaut or whatever I am. Right. But yet there's, I don't think we always see our potential to do something else and make an impact. It's like in the past, I've been involved in designing leadership classes and things like that for people. And I've run into people who will say to me, well, I don't want to take that class because I don't, I'm not a leader. I'm just a, so oh. when, 
So when anybody ever starts a sentence with, I'm just a, I'm just a mom, I'm just a teacher, I'm just a a janitor or whatever, I say, stop, you know, because you are making that decision or you're letting someone else define you. And that can happen in relationships that can happen, especially in families sometimes. Well, Alexandria, you know what you need to do. You just need to go to college and find yourself a good husband and have a couple of kids and da, 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 da. And then we buy into this. And then the other point that you 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 said um, you you pointed out is that's the pain that we carry with us. A lot of times we have to stuff. You know, things happen throughout life and society sometimes, or again, our family, our friends will tell us, "Well, Alexandria, just get over it." Especially with men. I mean, you know, and I I love my dad to death, but he was very much, you know, don't don't cry about it, just fix it. Yeah. You know? So so I didn't know what. So all I could do really is stuff the emotions, and sometimes what happens is they come out. Like I was watching a, a documentary called Summer of Soul, which is a it's a documentary about a like a five day, five weekend concert uh, that happened in Harlem in like 1968, 69. And they had these great performances. I mean, Mahalia Jackson, B.B. King, Sly and the Family Stone. Nobody hardly knows about this. Um, but in between the the performances, they had interviews with people that were heavily involved in the civil rights movement at the time. And I found myself getting very emotional watching it because it reminded me of even though I was eight or nine years old, I was still stuffing a lot of the racism that I saw after Dr. King got killed. I had to stuff that. And so uh, it becomes almost toxic. So I think, like you say, it's healing and freeing to be able to let those emotions out, whoever you are, black, white, you know, whatever your background is, because everybody's stuffing something. So right, I appreciate right. that. And it's, it's so true because you are stuffing it and subconsciously so to where you start to make yourself smaller to be able to conform to this what the outside perspective of of you is from others. So with me being a mom and a business owner, I was like, this is my role. I'm fine with it. But when I stepped, I feel like I stepped into my calling to live a little bit more out loud. Obviously, I didn't feel worthy of that space before because of whatever insecurities I had, you know, things said over time, oh, you're dark skin, you're this, that colorism, even within our race, all those aspects and all those things that I carried with me and they started to become a part of my personality. And I I feel like I I shrank myself to a certain degree. That day, that healing I experienced allowed me to really, really just step into who I actually was and and allow myself to shine and to be a part of the solution for, for where we are as a people. But yes, we have to we have to heal as a people too. Like that's uh, a terrible thing we're going through because it manifests and it becomes perpetual and it goes from generation to generation, the lack of self-worth and all the things that come with it. And so you, um, you, you try to make yourself smaller to not kind of rock the boat. (laughs) Well, and the other thing I'm thinking of is, I mean, we're both involved in diversity and equity issues and things like that. And, and a lot of people of color and a lot of white allies and allies of all backgrounds spend a lot of time and energy marching, talking, having conversations, going to events, going to webinars, you know, they're invested in it. And I appreciate that as Mm -hmm. we are at the same time, there's a, a, a part of the population in this country that spends a lot of energy avoiding it. 
not wanting to talk about race, not wanting to talk about human trafficking or not wanting to talk about a variety of things. And they just want to live their life. And, and they're, they're very respectful of other people. But at the same time, I'm thinking they're absorbing some of that as well. You know, it's, it's when you have an issue and you're avoiding it, it takes a certain amount of energy to avoid it, <laughs> to avoid it and pretend it's not there. So you might as well, I'm thinking you might as well just confront it. Well, I think it affects everybody to begin with because we're all interconnected as human beings, right? Like even on a, mo a molecular level, if you want to get down to metaphysics, if if they are putting so much energy into avoiding it, I've actually heard this perspective where I have spoken to some women whose age range is like 60 and up white women, and they're uncomfortable with the conversation because they don't feel like it's their place. They don't feel like they have a seat at the table. They don't feel like it's their table even to sit at. So a lot of it is like they want to express their opinion or express their dismay with situation or express their confusion because they're searching for clarity, but also feel like, I don't even know if I should say anything. Or if I say something, would this be misconstrued and somebody think I'm racist? So there's that that uncomfortability with also getting past the discomfort. Like, you know what I mean? Like we got to get past it. You got to, you got to embrace the discomfort so that we could get to the other side. And if you offend me, and that's where we have to have grace too, on the other side, if you offend me or you say something, I had, I was talking to someone and the woman said colored and I was like, okay, <laughs> that just happened. But I understand that she just doesn't possess the language to articulate the thoughts in which in the way that she wants to because the question was very loving she just didn't have the language so what I have to do is identify what the intention is and connect with the intention and not focus so much on the word oh absolutely I mean it's all about intent and it's just like when I moved to Hawaii and my wife and I lived there for five years and the only time I had spent in Hawaii was a couple of times as a tourist so I really uh, wanted to keep my mouth shut because it was easy for me to say things like referring to the people that live there as natives. And, you know, there's all kinds mm. of faux pas that, yeah. that because like you say, I don't have the context. I don't know the history. Um, uh, I don't have the language. I don't know the words. So I would ask people and people were very gracious. I said, hey, I'm ignorant. I'm not afraid to use right. that word. I am ignorant of your culture. So I want to learn. And people were very gracious and invited me to things, talked to me. Um, I think where people get into trouble is when they try and conceal the ignorance in a way mm. where it becomes it looks like it's arrogance. Because uh. <laughs> rather than say, I don't know, they're going to say, well, Alexandria, I saw this documentary on <laughs> on black women and, you know, or my one black friend says, you know, right, I'm thinking right. one black friend represents the entire race. I mean, would you say that about white people? Well, my one white friend told me and people say that's, that's 80 million white people <laughs> or whatever in the country. You know, how can you just base it, base your entire view of the world on what two people said? It's ridiculous. Right. So I think one thing that I, I've done even in trainings is I'll talk about my own biases. We all have them. I mean, I grew up in a city. I had a bias about people who live in the country. Well, country, yeah. why do you want to live in the country, you know, and then I started thinking yeah. of the Beverly Hillbillies and all kinds of like just stereotypes and things. Awful. And that's that's funny that you say that because I'm from the South mm. and I have worked since I'm now in public speaking. I think you can still hear it from time to time. Like people are like, where are you from? 
but I work really hard on not having that twang. Like my husband's twang, still very much pronounced because he doesn't public speak. He doesn't put energy into kind of hiding it. But I was self-conscious about that because I felt like people will feel, like you said, they they associate you with being country. And if you're country, you're ignorant. So <laughs> I think that the, the fear of the biases too <laughs> come into play into how we behave. Absolutely. I mean, and I grew up and this is where a lot of the influences come in. I grew up, my parents both grew up in the segregated South. And I remember my dad, my dad, even, you know, as a kid, I'm hearing him say, about, yeah, you know, I went to the get my car fixed in this Pickerwood. He tried to he tried to rip me off. I said, Pickerwood, what's a pick? Because I'm thinking Pickerwood, I'm thinking of Woody Woodpecker. And I'm thinking, <laughs> is he calling that man a woodpecker? But I didn't know all of these derogatory terms that black yeah, people had for Southern white people. So I was very wary of as soon as I growing up, as soon as I heard a Southern accent, I, OK, it's probably yeah. a bigot. You know, he's you probably ignorant, narrow minded until I met people, mm-hmm. a lot of people from the South and said, no, I'm totally wrong. And that's why I tell people, you know, instead of sitting and watching YouTube videos, you need to you, you need to go out and and intermingle with people. I know it's hard right now with COVID, but even even on Zoom calls, just get to know people from different backgrounds. And a lot of those stereotypes start to melt away. So if I said to you, I met you at a backyard barbecue and I said, Alexandria, Nicole, what's your story? I mean, how would you I mean, it's kind of an elevator speech, you know, that because I want some bullets so then I can we can elaborate on certain bullets for me. I would say I am a motivational speaker. I am somebody that likes to engage in the community and make a difference. I want to be impactful. I am a documentarian. I am currently doing a fundraiser for a documentary called After the Protest. So let's talk about that because I saw that on your uh, Facebook page, I think. So I'm excited about that. And how that came about was before I protested, I really didn't understand or respect the process or what it even uh, meant or did. And I think that that was because you always kind of see in the media the thing, the catalyst for protest, what it was that made people angry to take to the streets. You, And then you, the second part that you see is whether the protest was peaceful or whether it, it became violent. But you never really see what effects came after the protest, right? What was the cause and effect? What things were influenced by that protest? What changes have been made? So to me, it always just looked like, okay, you take to the street, you go hold a sign, you go home. And after I started to really research it, I saw that no, protesting in the 60s especially worked because they would protest outside of establishments and affect their bottom line by $250,000 in a day. Like, you know what I mean? Like they, it was organized and it, it was purposeful and it was strategic in a way to where you get people to listen by affecting them where most people value, which is the pocket. So with having after actually like researched it and seeing what it's about, I'm like, okay, there is a reason why people do this. And I want to talk to the people that participate in protests to see if it sparked anything personally for them, any change or any deviation in in the way they usually live their life. It's an interview style documentary where I'll be talking to people that participated, whether they participated and spoke or didn't speak or, you know, I'll be talking to 
civil servants that were there and just getting all different kinds of perspectives and backgrounds on how it affected them, if at all. And did that day challenge them to make any personal changes? Because it did me. And I want to connect with the other people who, who it influenced them to, to change their path. And I want to show people that, hey, <laughs> these things matter. <laughs> mm-hmm. People collectively getting together and using our energy for positivity it changes the course of where we're going as a people. So we have, we've got to get it together. <laughs> well, historically, yeah. I mean, I, I often think of the freedom riders and the, the people that really, I, I don't know how they did it. I mean, they're, they're heroes of the sixties of, of all backgrounds, you know, people who were the lunch counters sit-ins, the, the buses. I remember there's a scene of a bus on fire and a freedom rider sitting on a, on a curb as this bus burns. And I'm trying to think, wow. Can you imagine? I mean, uh, I mean, nowadays, I'm not saying that, you know, people get into it with the cops and I'm not talking about the cops right right now. Back then, you know, if you were protesting, all of the cops, for the most part, were hostile. You had water hoses, you had dogs, the people at the sit ins at the lunch counter had flour poured over them. And you had um, people hurling, you know, inwards racial slurs at them. And so their lives were literally uh, really on the line back then. So the thing about protesting, I think, as well, as you mentioned, it hits people in the pocketbook. And unfortunately, some people, some people will, will do the right thing, but there's a whole segment of the population that need to be motivated because they go, well, yes, it's, it's wrong that people should be discriminated against, but they're not going to do anything about it. They're going to go, you know, shut their door, go home. Yeah, they feel like it's a problem outside of themselves and it's really not their fight. And I'm just going to mind my business. (laughs) Right. But really, it's it's all of our fights. Have you seen, it's this wonderful caricature of like four people on a boat and the boat has a hole in the front of it. Oh, right. Yes. That is us. Like that is a Mm -hmm. perfect drawing of like us as human beings where you feel like, I'm so far removed from the problem that I'm unaffected. Actually, you're not. <laughs> well, yeah, it's a, it's a ripple effect. It, it's to me, it's very much like uh, I'll use a medical analogy. It's very much like a lot of people w- will get cancer, for instance, or get some other disease and once they go in to get it treated, and hopefully they get it treated soon enough, a lot of times doctors will tell you, well, you know, this goes all the way back to 20 years ago when you smoked a lot, or 20 years ago when you did this, or there's some other contributing Mm. factor that might not be in the present. So just because you say, well, I don't want to be bothered with that, that's not my problem. Somewhere down the line in the future, because you didn't act, it's Mm. going to be your problem because you didn't invest in taking the time to address the problem. But you couldn't see how it affected, how it would affect you later on. And the the other point I wanted to make before I forget is just that some people, and I call them the racism deniers, the people that why are we always talking about race, Alexandria? You know, just just pretend I'm colorblind. I don't you know, I don't see race. And if people with more people felt like that, we wouldn't constantly have these problems. Kind of like, well, if you don't talk about cancer, it'll go away, you know, which so it's kind of ridiculous. But the other thing I wanted to point out is that sometimes people say, well, we had a black president, you know, twice. Therefore, racism doesn't exist. I said, well, 52 percent of the people voted for Barack Obama. That means like 47, 48 didn't. And of that group, there there is a certain percentage of those people that didn't vote for him because he was black. And a lot of those people can be in powerful positions that can affect people. So just because you change laws 
you desegregated the schools, but did that end racism? It just mm. forced it just forced the racists to adhere to the new rules, much like a speed limit on a freeway. They got to be more stealthy about the racism. Yeah, now. or they move, <laughs> or they do the white flight thing. Well, we're going to go out to the suburbs and get away from all the people of color because now they're invading the neighborhood. Exactly. So it, where are you at with this film? Are you filming right now? or? Oh, no, I'm still in the fundraising. So okay. our first um, we our first benchmark goal is to get to 7000 so that we can do uh, visuals for it, mm -hmm. like a little trailer to show people what it's about, because I think I've, I've talked to a bunch of stakeholders in the community and the perspective is they don't really know what the energy is going to be. Mm. They don't, you know what I mean? Cause after the protest, that could go either way. It could be a totally bashing film and they don't know. So I want to show people, no, this is what it's about. It's about collective humanism and coming mm -hmm. together and, and love language and having the tough discussion. I just read a quote by Morgan Freeman where he said, uh, we need to stop talking about racism or something and then it will go away. And I'm just like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if kind of, that feels a little bit like just ignore it and it will not be present. I've seen that quote and nothing against Morgan. But Morgan, you're Morgan Friedman. You're not going to be exposed or have to endure a lot of the things that people that aren't Morgan Friedman have to endure. So if you're sitting up in wherever he lives, Beverly Hills, and you know, and 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 you're you're insulated from that. And that's the thing. Some people, you know, whether you're living on a farm in South Dakota or you're you're not dealing with an you you don't get stopped by the cops in in Philadelphia at two in the morning. So you're not gonna have the same experience where, you know, you get stopped get a, a parking ticket in Beverly Hills. So for people just to say, well, if we just stop talking about it, that's pretty easy when you don't have to deal with it. Yeah, because I think that he, yes, we have, surpa he surpassed the, I don't know. I don't want to talk out of turn, but we're getting to classism and all that stuff now. <laughs> so, it, well, you know, once you get to a certain level, it's, it's about who you are and your status and how much power you have as opposed to your ethnicity or your race. You know what I mean? So, well, and, and, and I understand the idealism behind it because, and, and I, you know, I used to think that way when, when I was much younger and I used to say, well, why can't we just, you know, because I kind of grew up in the, you know, the hippie, the, you know, love, peace, everybody just peaceful, you know, love everybody, whatever. But again, there's the reality. And then there's what my perceived reality is, which can be two different things. So I'm sitting here in Seattle. I don't know if somebody's on the south side of Chicago. I can't tell. I can't say, well, you know what they should do on the south side of Chicago. So exactly. I'd rather just learn about it and also explore and, you know, my own ignorance about things and be willing to say, I don't know, you know, tell me or dear me in the right direction. So in the last yeah. couple minutes here, I just wanted to, what would you like people to know? Because people say, well, who, who was that Alexandria Nicole? I want to know more about what's going on. Here's your, your closing statement, oh, okay. your encore statement, kind of, I guess. <laughs> my encore <laughs> statement. Well, my statement is that I want my legacy to be one of love. And I want it to be one that brings people together and I want to be impactful. And I want to uplift and inspire and motivate everybody that comes in my presence or comes across my page or comes across any project that I do. I just want to be somebody that contributes to in a positive way to our existence in this state of time. 
So I'm Alexandria Nicole. My handle is the real Alexandria Nicole. I can be found there and <laughs> that's all. <laughs> this is All The Way Authentic. I'm your host, Kevin P. Henry. Thanks for listening to another episode of Pod Tease, a production of the MediaCasters. Rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to discover your next binge-worthy favorite. For more information, visit our website, themediacasters.com, and follow us on social platforms at The MediaCasters.